Tenderheits. Tenderheits. I mean, I, we should just I, start the, all the, uh, every every episode like that. In the Heights. <laughs> yeah, sure. You you and I, obviously famously from Washington Heights, and adore the musical, which <laughs> I I believe is true to life. I mean, the the streets are indeed filled with music, and we would break out into until Lin Manuel Miranda numbers. stole our idea. Exactly. For a Tony Award winning musical. I know. S- stealing uh, Washington Heights valor. I heard he grew up in Harlem. What <laughs> oh. the hell? I heard he's. Super white is he's Puerto Rican, but he doesn't. Yeah, look he's Puerto, Puerto Rican. I, yeah, he's like passing. He's like the uh, oh pleasant, you know, <laughs> pleasant white friend you could have. I'm sorry, that's a horrible accusation. Uh, yeah, that's really somebody. that's really mean. He's really earnest. He seems like a nice guy. I don't know yeah. why we're. I, that's I think that's what makes us want to pick on him. It's like he's so perfect. It's like what's his angle? <laughs> well, that well also, it, it's the fact that he's co-opted. I feel the same way about Greta Thunberg. The the climate activists like mm-hmm. i feel like they're genuinely great people in real life it's however the people that want to attach themselves to the person <laughs> um because greta thunberg has shaken hands with one justin trudeau who said oh mon ami uh, <laughs> you are you are an example i'm assuming that's what justin uh, uh oh quebecois <laughs> yeah I'm assuming that's what Justin Trudeau sounds like, mm-hmm. but uh, he will shake his hand and say, like, yes, climate change is, is important to acknowledge, and then uh, turn around the very next second and talk with oil companies wanting to do a pipeline through native oh. aboriginal land. Yeah, because so, Justin yeah. Trudeau is apparently uber corrupt. And, oh, absolutely. And he's been getting along with all this this all this wink and the smile gimmick that he's been going on. And that's why yeah. I'm like kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop on Lin-Manuel Miranda. Like, there's got to be there's got to be some darkness there. That's all I'm thinking. Well, I, I hope he goes. Well, we'll see how the Hamilton adaptation plays out. If it's anything like, I don't know, well, first the cag, we got to see how Into Heights goes. So yeah, <laughs> let's not put the cart before the horse. No, not at all. But yeah, I feel like it. I, I worry that he's he's gotten too attached to I don't know people like Jimmy Fallon and mm. uh, other annoying talk show personalities. You know, phony people, fake friends, as it were. Your Whereas I'm sure Lin, Lin-Manuel, if we became actual friends in real life, uh, I'd sure be the genuine oh, he'd article. probably be palling around with George W. Bush, like, eh, what war crimes? Hey, we're just yeah. having a good time here. <laughs> we're all friends. Remember, kindness. Yeah. <laughs> kindness. Exactly. But, the, but the point is, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda is not canceled yet. Okay. However, speaking of men we should cancel, Ooh. speaking of men who are over... Mm-hmm. Let's let's talk about one Terry Gilliam. Um, I've been dying, dying <laughs> to talk about this because <laughs> he's out and about promoting a, a long gestating pro, uh, project called the Man, the Man from La Mancha. Mm-hmm. It's a, a, a sort of adjacent to Don Quixote, and it's finally come to fruition after all these years later. And what he decided to do for the press was complain that uh, young people are stupid, <laughs> and I'm not afraid to be white and be wrong in the world. <laughs> And women are liars. <laughs> women are liars. Yeah, and not kind of, really. The Me Too movement is a witch yeah. hunt. Like, just all of your classic talking points. Like, you'd yeah. be great. Again, as many people have pointed out, there's probably no worse way to launch your movie. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe let's look at the substance of what he's saying and why, and wh- why exactly he's wrong. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't think we need to take the time, but okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> I want to talk about it because I feel kind of vindicated. Just a little bit. Because I've never <laughs> been a fan of Terry Gilliam. Um, I just never saw the appeal. I know he's he's been part of Monty Python, and I appreciate him from that perspective. But yeah, I've all his movies are just kind of... Of 
wackadoo nonsense, and so that's why I never really liked him so as wait a filmmaker. A so now that I realize that he has shitty opinions, I'm like, yes, I knew it. <laughs> so wait a minute, you just you just wanted to bring this up just so you could say, oh, I feel validated. I don't have to separate the art from the man. Both the art and the man are terrible. Exactly. I win. <laughs> I win. <laughs> okay, fair enough. I I mean, well, it looks like you want to defend John, him, Greg. Defend him. Say, uh, explain how Def- Me Too is well, actually. Well, exactly. I didn't, want to, I didn't want to defend him. I just wanted to get to the substance of what he said. And what he said is he's got one anecdote from a woman who apparently offered herself uh, to, to get a role oh, on, I don't know, The Adventures of Baring Harkonnen or whatever that movie was. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't the Brothers Grimm, I'll tell you that much. Well, yeah. Because no. everyone stayed far away from that one. <laughs> Exactly. So, like, like his personal experience, it's, it's kind of like saying there's no such thing as climate change. It was snowing the other day. Like, <laughs> one woman offered herself for a role, so therefore all women are harlots. I think that's yeah. I think that's a pretty standard line to take. Good for him. Yes, and even that one one is dubious. And this is this in the midst of the Harvey Weinstein being tried finally for his uh, terrible crimes in New York City, mm-hmm. of which there are hundreds of victims who are ready and willing to give their testimony. Again, hundreds. Mm-hmm. And it just demonstrates the amount of how sickening the amount of power that he wielded um, could lead him to ruin lives and, and commit these terrible assaults in this way. Exactly. So, so the fact that he can't even acknowledge that, that he can't even, you know, uh, I don't know, spare just a little bit of sympathy for the victims and just assume, oh, no, like, uh, just based on one personal dubious anecdote, I, d- I don't believe any of this garbage. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But then again, he's an old white man. What the hell are you going to do? Exactly. I mean, yeah. empathy takes I mean, work. we should acknowledge that we're young white men, but we, <laughs> we know that white people are terrible and should all be, I don't know, uh, taken out of culture and... I mean, empathy takes work, so I understand these people are like, oh, why bother? Why can't we just, you know, group it's them not all that into- hard. It is not that hard. <laughs> it's hard for Terry Gilliam. I mean, did you see how long the Man of La Mancha took to make? Like, he must be so exhausted. <laughs> to spare a single ounce of compassion for a woman just is just it's, it's the straw that broke the camel's back. All right. But again, it doesn't matter because we'd never have to see another film from him ever again. Thank goodness. No. Yay! And more importantly, Jonathan Price comes clean as, as in everything. <laughs> he comes completely clean out of the wash. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Adam Driver, too. How is Adam Driver this prolific? Does he How? not have a, a, a life? like? Uh, probably not. Is he secretly well, it's not a digital that much actor a... and we just didn't know? Uh, is that no, why his not... face looks all messed up? <laughs> I thought you were going to say something about his acting style. Hey Oh, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. I like his acting. <laughs> I'm, I'm assuming it's not that big of a commitment to do because he's not, he's, he's not a multi hyphen. Mm. It's not like he's working on other projects. Like he can film Marriage Story. I don't know how long that took. Maybe 40 days, and then go and do Man of La Mancha, which also could take like 50 days. The point is, it's a long year, and all, if all you're doing is acting, you can be, you could do multiple projects in one year. Is what I'm saying. It's probably just a coincidence that all these projects are coming out at the same time. Ah, uh, that's probably true. Like again, because a lot of his stuff is, um, a lot of his stuff is obviously uh, does the festival circuit first. So obviously that takes years for it to actually get a full release. So yeah, it just kind of feels like Adam Driver has like nine million projects coming out at once when he does a lot of prestige pictures. So obviously yes. it all come out at the same time of year. So I know why can't he get in like an Adam Sandler comedy or something? <laughs> why wasn't he part of Mermaid those? Are basically or... paid vacations too? He should want to do those kind of yeah. Roles. <laughs> Nobody's young and ambitious, and he's a hot worker. Wait till he's at least like I don't know, forty-five, mm. and got a few kids to feed, and 
<laughs> He'll be like uh, Robert De Niro or Joe Pesci, or not Joe Pesci, yeah. of, of uh, Al Pacino. It's just uh, phoning it in. <laughs> yeah. Joe Pesci had it right. Just leave quit. it. Just Forget quit. it. You're done. Yeah, just quit. Yeah, I'm done. I made my money. Exactly. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Joe, uh, Jack Black kind of said the same thing pretty recently. He was doing Junket for like uh, the Jumanji movie, and he was like, yeah. yeah, I'm getting up there, and I think it's, uh, I'm, I'm taking a lot of time away from my family, so I'm just, I might just call it quit soon. <laughs> yeah, and, and he might as well. I mean, he's been doing this for 25 years, probably made the millions and millions of dollars. Oh, I hope yeah. he'll... And he's gray uh, as hell. Like, that's the other yeah, thing people it, don't realize. Like, all these people are gray and old as hell. It's just, <laughs> you don't see it because they're covered in makeup. They have special effects covering up everything. Like, have you seen Ben Stiller recently? Like, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I don't want to comment on, on their appearance, looking as I do. Mm. No, but I hope he also feels, like, creatively fulfilled. Like, the fact that he could do Tenacious D in so many different iterations is probably, I, I hope, fulfilling on his part. That's true. Ugh. But enough about recent releases, Greg. We don't talk about those. Please, no. that's not what this podcast is about. Or contemporary actors, or people at all. Um, <laughs> the, the impetus of the show, Aspiring Snobs, if it's, this is your first time, welcome. I'm Greg, this is John. Hello. And... The idea behind the show is to catch up on classics and really build our film bona fides by catching up on movies that we haven't seen yet. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes they're massive entertainments that have taken the world by storm, like, say, Titanic or uh, Gone with the Wind. Other times they're small art house dramas, like uh, 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 Enigmar Bergman film or something from Akira Kurosawa. And sometimes they're incendiary documentaries, something that really lights the world on fire. (laughs) Not very often, though, because I was looking back in our catalog, I think we've only done, like, three documentaries, maybe? (laughs) In our entire catalog, but yes. Finally, we're catching up with this one. A very important documentary from the 70s. Yes, an Academy Award winner. And, I think more importantly, directed by a woman, (laughs) which we also don't do enough. (laughs) This is directed by the the great Barbara Koppel. This is actually her directorial debut. And it is the incendiary. Again, all documentaries are incendiary. (laughs) It is Harlan County, USA. I knew absolutely nothing about this movie going into it. <laughs> I didn't even yes. know it was a documentary. Um, <laughs> I assumed just from the title, it's it was it, it had something to do with coal mining. That's really all I kind of knew. Um, but yeah, so I really had no expectations coming into it. Greg, what what made you besides the fact that you you wanted something directed by a woman and you had at least known a little bit about it by its pre uh, its about its reputation? What what made you choose this film? 
Well, not just the fact that it was directed by a woman and that it's uh, also available on Criterion Collection, which we haven't like caught up on yet, but <laughs> that's a whole other story. Uh, it's also, I think the subject matter is very telling because we have a socialist presidential candidate, a, a one who's leading the polls, but mm-hmm. we'll... Yeah, um, polls are great if they're um, if they support the candidate that you like. Um, if not, you could ignore them. But I I feel like there's this rising tide of workers coming back because now we're as many people accuse we're we're in kind of late stage capitalism where the balance between um, the high the the income inequality between the one percent and the and the hoi polloi workers has uh, never been greater and it's really kind of causing our, our economy and some kind of social structures to teeter. Mm-hmm. And this is just a, kind of an example from that. It's a movie that profiles the uh, strike taking place in the early 1970s in Har- uh, Harlan County, uh, Kentucky, uh, between the rank-and-file mine workers and Duke Energy, um, one of the big like kind of energy conglomerates that actually owns this mine. Mm-hmm. And so the... I think originally what they wanted to investigate was a crime because this this story gets very bloody very fast. Yes. Um, <laughs> originally I, it was it was more about the coverage of the actual election for the president of the union, but uh, once there's some kind of blood that spilled, unfortunately, like the the focus the of uh, the documentarians had to shift quite a bit, and I think it really helped them because it, it kind of brought them more kind of closer to the the grindstone their nose is a bit closer to the ground about what's actually happening and kind of far away from the the kind of in and outs of politics and too much of the um too much of the kind of machinations above them this is more focused on the actual people the actual workers the strikers as it were so um and uh it's very effective uh one of the things that obviously one of the documentaries that we've revisited for this before is uh, hoop dreams Mm-hmm. And what I love about Hoop Dreams is kind of the banality of it all. And I think this movie also quite captures it as well. Like, obviously, it has an editorial voice, but it doesn't work too hard for you to get it. There's no, like, a Michael Moore figure coming out and being like, you see, this is why we need to defend this. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Don't um, you get it? Capitalism is bad. <laughs> yeah. There's no uh, Adam McKay style, you know, fourth wall breaks being like, I hope you get it, okay? Because here's yeah. what we're trying to explain to you. Yeah, and... Again, I think it's a great kind of. Uh, if it is, if there's any like direction by Barbara Koppel other than just saying like, oh, we should include this person, this element, this, this, and this, mm-hmm. it is the fact that she also kind of trusts and like knows how to build a narrative just out of um, kind of profiling these rank and file people. Because mm-hmm. um, initially, it just starts with uh, the folks on the picket line. I think we're very early into the strike, which ultimately takes a whole year, and. It, it kind of profiles them and it does at least acknowledge that um, some people think like oh like jo- joining a union that's that's a that's just one step towards communism mm-hmm. and like any good like argument it does like at least acknowledge the other side but this film is very much on the side of the workers absolutely it profiles them and doesn't even like doesn't even bother to like acknowledge the people behind duke energy there are heroes and there are villains in this and and I want to actually give it credit for that because what's what's clear and what's demonstrative is that like Duke Energy and and all these companies like already they already have their stories and you know they already have their side of the story and those sides are terrible because <laughs> as, as the film kind of documents like we profile these people and we see like 
and we see their plight as the rank and file people. The film opens with these very tight conditions, and as we see, it gets violent later, but Barbara Koppel acknowledges, like, that was not the most dangerous part. The most dangerous part was actually going into the mines Mm -hmm. and almost having our heads chopped off and breathing in all this toxic coal dust. And so, like, you see, it establishes immediately what these people's lives are like and what they are fighting for, not just in their, not just in their livelihoods as workers, but also somewhat of their identity, Mm -hmm. because all they have is really mining. And that's kind of one of the other interesting things that the documentary brings up is the fact that um, coal mining is really the only industry that's out here, and that's kind Mm -hmm. of by design. They want to control the labor market, so how do you control the labor market? Well, you control where they're allowed to work and the only places where they're allowed yeah. to work. And so, it, it and the gives... skills they have, so they can't go and do <laughs> other kinds of work. Exactly. And so, there's there's obviously um, a large education gap because they're out in mm-hmm. rural Kentucky. They don't have a lot of uh, opportunities out there, and it gives them a lot of bargaining as well when they're. You know, there's obviously negotiating. Uh, I kind of got lost a little bit. <laughs> I'll be frank yeah. um, about the negotiations. Like they're talking about kind of like very kind of es- not esoteric, but like very kind of minute details in the contract. And eventually they just get to loggerheads about it. And I'm like, I, I completely misunderstood what was going on, but I just kind of knew how unfair the were being treated and what little choice they actually have in the matter, because this is literally their only lifestyle they have. Organized labor. Organized labor. Organized labor. Well, hell, I don't, I don't think Danny's in here for anything except break the strike here. They are for the company all the way. Gav wouldn't be up there if they stayed true. I don't have any feelings one way or another. You just have a job. And why are you here? Keep the roads open. The forest laws. Keep the peace. Try to keep people from getting hurt. Put your hands on me, Hall. Bailey. You Yeah, it's well it's it's kind of brushed over, but the the main crux of the con the main crux of the dispute is that uh the miners want to unionize. Mm-hmm. And they want to sign a contract with Duke Energy. Duke Energy will not sign that contract if they want to be part of that union. Oh, okay. Got it. Yeah. So that's that's basically the, the crux. And so that's why you get these differing perspectives. Well, not really differing because only two people acknowledge, or acknowledge the other side of it. But you have people fighting hard for the union because they feel they'll be their interests will be represented with this contract. Mm-hmm. So even though there is an education gap, I want to say, like, you get when you picture southeastern Kentucky, you're probably picturing like country bumpkins. <laughs> but the, I, w- I was amazed, and I don't want to sound condescending in that, but the the amount of like passion and poetry and and articulateness are like on display here is incredible, because what Koppel uh, also does like brilliantly is weave in all the folks all the folk songs that people use mm-hmm. to basically uh, get into your head uh, your support for your union. Exactly. Uh, it was like um, uh, uh, this is gonna this is gonna make it sound facile, but <laughs> these folk songs and jingles are like were like the memes of their day. They're they're what kind of like it, like incepted the idea that um, you know you should support your your union and yeah you can 
dispute the logic behind the song of like which side are you on mm-hmm. um, but because they're folksy like it's it's like a very poetic picture of what these people's lives are like and you do get on their side just through the power of music yeah exactly and i think it also um is a good demonstration of how long this fight has been going on like mm-hmm. all these folk songs are obviously dating back to the early turn of the century and now here it is in the 1970s and i don't know if you listen to a lot of npr if you turn on npr and they talk about any stories from west virginia or coal country they're talking about the exact same thing like this never fucking changes (laughs) (laughs) no and so that's that's what i do like is you you're emotionally drawn in by these people's stories but then they also like give you some medicine in the form of history Mm -hmm. and there are two uh, the two big uh kind of pieces of medicine are First, a, a little bit of backstory of Harlan County and its nickname, Bloody Harlan County, <laughs> because back in the 30s, the, the uh, strike got so out of control, it became basically a war between the workers and the National Guard and police force. And there's that always that tension happening yes. currently in the movie that, you know, things are going to get break out into quite a bloody conflict. Uh, there's yes. always talk about, well, what can we bring? Can we bring our guns? No, we can't. We're not allowed to bring guns. We, this, this is supposed to be peaceful. We're supposed to be peaceful. Mm-hmm. This is how we win the war of public opinion. But obviously yeah. the other side, the scabs and, you know, the uh, foreman, uh, he's the only one I really recognize because he's the only one <laughs> I think we only get kind of continuity from scene to scene with. Uh, that... Well, yeah, because he never changes his clothes and always <laughs> looks the same. as the same, like, sneering gay when you film in, in him inside his like Ford Bronco or something. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> his red Ford Bronco. Again, very that it's not like this isn't a narrative film. It's not like your your choice you have choices to make in terms of um in terms of getting a point across. But the fact that this guy with like very a very downward gaze and a red Bronco <laughs> and a gun like literally hanging out of his pants. Like it's amazing that yeah, real life really does um, kind of uh, reflect these artistic things too. Mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah. And I guess we should also bring up the big fact about this film, and I think also probably helped by the fact that it was directed by a woman, is the role of the wives and the fact yes. that the whole family gets involved in this strike. It's not just the men who have to go to the picket line. It's the women who are organizing things. It's the women who are setting up timetables and schedules and supporting their men throughout this. And it really does, it shows that, yes, like, being a coal miner is part of their identities, like, not just for them, but also their whole families. And that this is something generationally that they just are part of. And this is something that is always going to be part of the whole city and the whole population. Mm-hmm. So, um and they, like, as the movie goes out, you know, you see all the kind of camaraderie, but it's, I think about the halfway point, it does turn into kind of, like, spats. Like, there is some kind of, like, fracturing, and it's like, she's an alcoholic, I've seen her, you guys, <laughs> you guys are sleeping in when you, I, I'm being, I'm being very blithe and unfair, but that's yeah. kind of how it comes off. <laughs> yeah, so the, uh, let's talk about the movie narratively, like, how it plays out. First, we get this kind of backstory to Harlan County, it's blood. Uh, there's some information about and why the movie's on the side of the miners is because it acknowledges that, yes, companies could treat their workers better and treat black lung just as the miners in Germany, Australia, all around the world do. Mm-hmm. But the energy companies refuse. And in one of the most, again, I'm going to use that word, incendiary pieces, it also profiles the Manningham, uh, Manningham mining disaster in West Virginia mm-hmm. in which 70 miners lost their lives. Mm-hmm. So... Again, it's giving you this history on why basically you should support the miners in this in this strike because it's clear that uh, the the energy companies and the police force that's used to enforce um, <laughs> their 
<laughs> or basically break the picket line um, of why, why their particular viewpoint isn't favorable. So there's that bit, but then there's also, and then in the middle act, we get to the, the violence starts to break out. I believe that the the scab, or at least the foreman who who brings in who breaks this picket line and brings in scabs, the one who totes around his gun, mm-hmm. and at one point actually does shoot at at, at picketers and the documentary crew. Yeah, um, he, uh, that's that basically makes up most of the middle act, and that's and it's here where the women really come to the to the to the fore. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's the women who, as you said, even though despite the little disputes that they have, like you know, we, we need solidarity here. You can't be sleeping in at five a.m. We need you out on that picket line, and they're the one that's able to force away and also bring the warrant to the to the do nothing sheriff, who's finally <laughs> able to arrest this this uh, scab. So, mm-hmm. exactly. or at least this this picket line breaker. So. They're gonna shoot at us today. Shot at us yesterday. What about today? I don't know. Scared. I hope not. Yeah. Ain't you? <laughs> I just hope nobody gets hurt. I don't believe, man. We just seen them because we got people out on that. Let them come by some scabs come. We've got our gun now. They may not. They may work too shit. they ain't going to do nothing bad like that. That's how the movie narratively plays out, but I do love the brilliant moments that they're allowed to capture, like the the tactic they use to get up to New York City, go to the Wall Street Stock Exchange, oh, yeah. and try to scare traders into <laughs> like actually like selling their stock, <laughs> so that the the company's price starts to diminish and they're forced to come to the negotiating table. And you get these brilliant moments, like one of the strikers, like uh, the foreign. Uh, protesting out in front of the Wall Street Stock Exchange <laughs> talking with a beat cop from New York. Oh, and it's just a great moment of class solidarity. Like yeah. <laughs> you've got the you've got the the uh, Kentucky man with a southern accent and then you've got this beat cop with this awesome Brooklyn accent. Yes. <laughs> talking, about, talking about, you know, the... comparing wages yeah. and you know like you know at one point he's like a cop the, you know living on a cop that must be dangerous too and the other guy's like yeah it's mostly bullshit work like this <laughs> like <you know>? yeah. <laughs> standing around like, basically being good. a Yeah, and, and he's like yeah He's like pretty, pretty good. I, I, I got a pension, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it gets sounding like rats over so from from uh, Midnight Cowboy or something, and you got this other like proper folksy guy from Kentucky. Yeah, it's like brilliant kind of. It, it's it's amazing how like expositional that is, and how like you've witnessed real life solidarity happen, or at least like seem to. Because again, it's a it's a documentary. It's not like you. No, obviously she didn't plan yeah. anything out. But yeah, like yeah. she knows how to work her camera and she knows how to get capture those great moments. The other mm-hmm. moment that kind of stuck out to me, it's the only time where you appreciate like besides what, when they get shot at, there's only like mm-hmm. one time where they kind of break the fourth wall and remind you, oh yeah, we are a documentary crew. The sheriff's like asking them like, are you allowed to be here? And you know, they like 
she asks, are you the sheriff? He's like, yes. Do you have your badge or anything? Can you show us that you're the sheriff? He's like, no. Do you have your papers? And it's like, ah, we don't have those either. It's kind of, <laughs> she kind of like turns it on his head. And they, like they're at Logger and she, he's just like, all right. And he just kind of continues on. <laughs> but I do love the fact, I'm, I'm kind of a, it's, it's, I'm, I'm a big Errol Morris fan. And one of the things I love about Errol Morris is the fact that he never completely takes himself out of whatever picture he's filming, but he just kind of like, he lets you kind of lose yourself in the experience and then kind of reminds you, it's like, oh, come on. Like, he'll remind you that it's like, yes, I am a documentarian filming this. And obviously I have a viewpoint. And I think this movie kind of captures the same thing. Um, And again, like I said, with Hoop Dreams, it's like, it's just kind of presenting it to you. Obviously, there is that editorial voice, but it's still, it's it's the banality of it all. That's what it's capturing. Um, And it's doing it extremely straightforward. You don't really appreciate the fact that there's a documentary crew there. They're not really getting recognized or anything like that. Like I said, there's no, like, uh, there's no personality to it. So, Mm -hmm. you know, there's nothing distracting from what also is. Well, it it doesn't need that personality. Mm, It's all informed by just the again it's not like they're performers but i want to talk in terms of them being performers but like how compelling these people are mm-hmm. like again like the the villainous um the foreman bringing in scabs and and the the wife that's able to rally the the whole folks and and actually form an effective picket line mm-hmm. and as, as we'll get to right now this i again how effective this movie is like it it was shaking me already but the fact that when this does turn into a war, and we literally have a martyr for this like strike cause, mm-hmm. uh, well, I should say there there are two. Mm-hmm. One one of which is probably just a, a a terrible crime. I can't I I can't even like wrap my head around it. But really, one of the subplots in this strike is that there's going to be a new uh, United Miners uh, Union president there's mm-hmm. going to be a new election um tony boyle's been in power for about 10 years and he's facing off against a uh, new blood in yablonski and people are like obviously very disappointed with the uh, boyle's presidency and and want Leblonsky. it looks like he's going to win the vote on new year's eve yablonski and his family are murdered in their home <laughs> and as the very end reveals like like boyle w- orchestrated the killing and so like it it like it it literally like shook me like if you didn't feel like already like the amount of violence and passion that goes into this this horrible conflict you, you kind of see it there in the, in the fact that somebody could callously not only murder the the man you're running against but also his wife and daughter mm. and and like that really kind of shook me to my core and also what and I don't want to put it in such callous terms but what really resolves the strike is that another young man is murdered mm-hmm. um like kind of forming out in the picket line before sunrise a young man named lawrence jones is shot and killed exactly and uh yeah. leaving leaving a a a, his, a single mother who's only about 16 years old and it's extremely complicated for everyone to talk about because on the one hand they're obviously uh, bereft from this tragedy but also at the other on the other hand they're like this had to happen in order for negotiations mm-hmm. to continue, unfortunately, and this is what brought the two sides together again, and yeah. so it's it's kind of a double-edged sword. It was a catch twenty-two, and it's really unfortunate that someone had to die in order for people to kind of move on. Exactly, this be conflict. a martyr. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's that's kind of a weird. And then, lo and behold, for the third act, it's like, yes, we finally got to the negotiated tables. They finally formed this union, but then they won't. They still can't come to an agreement on the actual package. Mm-hmm. 
uh, deal when it comes to that employment. And that's where I also kind of got confused and why um, the documentary is obviously meant to be unsatisfying. It's like, yes, the workers kind of win for, uh, to a certain extent, but also like, again, demonstrating that this will always be an ongoing fight. And like I said, you can turn on NPR any day and you'll be hearing <laughs> about, you know, the poor coal miners still dealing with black lung to this day, unfortunately. Yeah. So, yeah, I think the ultimate conclusion, at least with the hindsight of 40 years later, is that the miners technically won this battle. They got their contract. They got the representation. However, with the new union leadership, like the union would not go. There's no strikes at a local level. Like now you have to like, if one miner is going to strike, obviously all of them have to strike. Mm -hmm. And so there's no like, the idea is that solidarity, but there's no way in which local strikes can happen now. So it's as if like the the rank and some rank and file folks they're a little bit powerless. So it's as if the I think in this instance it's the the rank and file have won this battle in Harlan County, but they lost the war in terms of like having their union power diminished. Mm -hmm. So that's that's kind of the ultimate conclusion with the with the uh, forty years of of hindsight. It's just a demonstration of like <laughs> how this movie kind of fits into narratives that we understand like in terms of like having a bittersweet ending and having this martyr and Lawrence Jones like having to help resolve the final conflict and also the fact that now union and also just coal power in general is so diminished and now these people don't have any employment prospects and have kind of lost this this part of their livelihood and their identity. For 42 years is a mighty long time I labored and tall Down in a coal mine Down in a deep hole Where the bright lights did glow Back in a dark room us fading up cold. My bones they did ache me. My kneecaps got bad. Down on a hard rock on a set of knee pads. Yeah, it's a real bummer. <laughs> yeah, um. it's, it's, I, again, amazing documentary and. I, I use that term like I, I can't escape that term like I'm shaken like mm -hmm. I like what this movie chronicles is very I, I think like very important very incendiary and you will you will be enriched and perturbed by watching it so and extremely timely like again like talking yeah. about what we like with the growing income equality and things like that and you know, like mini spotlight, there's a great pro. I keep bringing up NPR, but there's a great program on NPR called Embedded, and they spent time this past year with coal miners. And again, they're still dealing with the same shit that you find in this documentary. And it's just, it's a damn shame that this is just mm -hmm. their lives and this is what they have to put up with. And if you're not pro union, if you're not pro Bernie, then what are you doing? <laughs> yes. <laughs> This is when I bring it back to a humanist direction and do my Al Pacino as Jimmy Hoffa impression. Yes. Okay. Solidarity. <laughs> Got nowhere to go. But up. <laughs> but he was also corrupt, Greg. Unions are corrupt. I know. That's true. <sighs> Damn it. I know. <laughs> Unions being greedy, bad. <laughs> Business owners being greedy, Good. that's okay. Yes. Yeah. <laughs>
Because they earned it somehow. Because it's just them at the top, so they're fine. <laughs> I think it was Boots Riley who like tweeted like it is kind of weird timing that with Bernie rising in the polls, like the Irishman comes out. Hmm, curious timing, interesting. Um, I, <laughs> I don't think that uh, movie moguls are that kind of conspiratorial, though. I don't think they're that smart. No, and well, that's. I think that demonstrates the brilliance of, of Martin Scorsese as an artist and that he's not telling you that, like, um, finger-wabbing, that, that Jimmy Hoffa and uh, his <laughs> Those unions, unions are bad news. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Maybe that's what he can take away from it uh, mm-hmm. because he's he's watching it through the lens of history and has his own interpretation of Jimmy Hoffa. Like, But, again, like, as an as an artist, like, Martin Scorsese's not, you know, finger, like, not finger-wagging or mm-hmm. not elevating or condemning, like, he's, he's giving it a creative interpretation of history. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and it's supposed to, it's designed to entertain and enrich us. It's not, it's not designed, it's not part of some, like, master plan by Netflix to <laughs> um, uh, diminish their unions, because obviously they're anti-union, if the cancellation of BoJack Horseman is enough evidence of that, mm. but it's to think if they're if they think about anything else other than money is probably <laughs> is probably uh, facile. Okay. I mean, they, yeah, again, they may not be pro union, but the, the timing probably has to just do with uh, getting the most amount of eyeballs and getting the most amount of awards attention, so you can get more eyeballs and sub- subscribers. That's it. <laughs> I don't know, man. These these capitalists are crafty. They yeah. killed a man. Come on. That's true. <laughs> They kill two. Exactly. It's a They have a lot of, yes, they have a lot of blood on their hands. <laughs> I mean, that's my favorite part about the documentary. It reminded me of Scab. It, it's got Scab back in my lexicon. So Absolutely. Now I can, now I can use that with, with a palm. I'm yes. excited. <laughs> I believe there was one proviso mentioned, like, they, they didn't want the actual picketers to use the term Scab. And I thought... That how perfect a demonstration of how powerful the word scab is. <laughs> that they're, they're like, uh, we're writing a new rule, you can't use it. Um, well, it's also like the problem I find with, you know, Democrats and more liberally minded people in general is the problem is they're too understanding. Like, even when they're trying to be unified and against a larger force, they're still like, but remember, we got to do it peacefully. We got to do it positively. Okay, guys? <laughs> yeah, it's like I, we're, we're playing by different rule books here. Yes. I, I Just perusing the, the Wikipedia page for this movie, I do want to point out um, one particular critic's reaction mm-hmm. and uh, note my tone in it. Uh, one of the better and more rousing labor strike films that calls attention to class war in America, though it doesn't offer enough analysis or balance <laughs> on the issue. <laughs> Oh, jeez. <laughs> I know. Yeah. No, I've seen the side of Duke Energy. I've seen their side of the story. Their story sucks, and I don't <laughs> want to hear it. Their story boils down to, we shouldn't have to pay for giving them horrible diseases that they'll deal with for the rest of their lives. Like, that's ultimately what it is. And yes, you should. <laughs> Assholes. I know. They'll keep couching it in these terms of like, well, America is a land of diverse opinions. <laughs> you know, some people, some people want pizza. Some people want salad. Um, some people want to live. Some people want their money. So, what are you gonna? What side are you gonna choose? I know it's exhausting. Sorry, not to be. Exactly. We live in exhausting not... times, folks. All right, in this I... and we're we're not helping, or maybe we are helping. I don't know. Who knows? You let us no, know. I think no. I well, Let's acknowledge that you and I are doing just fine. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. I'm going through grad school right now. I made the worst mistake of my life. I know. Yeah. <laughs> but relative to the folks of Harlan County, we're we're doing okay. We mm-hmm. have a, a we have a plethora of entertainment options there you go. Uh, to consume, <laughs> and we would like to share some of them with you right now.
Yes. In our signature section, Spotlight. 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 It's time, Robbie. It's time. Spotlight. Do, 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 yeah. do, do, this do. is how we conclude every episode. Into in heights. Which we, <laughs> yes, in which we wholeheartedly <laughs> recommend something. Uh, I wish I could recommend In the Heights if I can remember the soundtrack. I heard it once on a trip <laughs> through <laughs> Southern California, but that's about it. Didn't you, uh, when you saw Hamilton, were you like jazzing yourself up by listening to In the Heights first? Like you were like, oh, I need to, I need to know, see all of Lin Manuel Miranda's oeuvre in order uh, to truly no, understand. I was or reading, I was reading history books. Oh, <laughs> I was, oh, I see. I was getting a view of the founding fathers, both for and against. Yes, <laughs> the national banks are important. Hmm. <laughs> I was reading the Federalist Papers. There you okay, go. And having to tame tame the great beast that is the that is the voting block. But <laughs> got it. That that's a glossed over for some reason the musical. Anyway, mm-hmm. I don't want to be cynical, John. I want to actually do a little double bill. Okay. For Spotlight, my fiance and I actually have Disney Plus now. Oh, look at you! Guys. I won't say how we are or are not paying for it because screw Disney. They don't need any more of my dollars. Mm-hmm. We were just kind of scrolling through the option, and then we remembered that they also, back in the day, owned Touchstone Pictures, the venerable Touchstone Pictures, and we perused two of their biggest hits, Sister Act and Sister Act 2, Back in the Habit. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Let's hear it. Because, yeah. I mean, the, everyone has strong opinions about Sister Act 2, so I want to know. <laughs> I want to know. Well, I, uh, I'm going to bring some externalities, some history into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, first, Sixth Direct. I mean, great premise. You can't go wrong. No wonder this was probably one of the highest touted, like, original kind of concepts floating around Hollywood at the time. Uh, I forget the screenwriter's name, but um, it, like, people loved his script, but it went through, like, so many different revisions that he actually went through a, a pseudonym uh, on the actual credit. But, I mean, you know the premise. A lounge singer has to go into witness protection as a nun. Mm-hmm. And then, wow, hijinks ensue. <laughs> and with her, uh, let me just say, she turns out she's African-American. So her <laughs> urban patois uh, runs afoul with these uh, group of ladies, let me tell you. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I, I, if, I, if I have one criticism for the film, and, it, and it's very minor, minor mm-hmm. is because it really kind of glosses over all that. It doesn't really acknowledge that you know, her race and background are that much different, or let's say her moral background, because I thought, oh, this would be like a perfect contrast, like Whoopi Goldberg playing uh, the actress who's amoral, needs to straighten out her life, either through like her, her like, either through her promiscuity or like kind of a, a sinful behavior, like she has to learn, learn a right moral way of living, and then Maggie Smith, the mother superior, needs to learn to loosen up a little bit and, and, and embrace a, a joie de vivre instead of, you know, strictly living by the book. Well, there's, the there's the first problem with the movie, because Maggie Smith yeah. doesn't need to change a goddamn thing. Okay, <laughs> Maggie Smith is perfect. No. <laughs> this is probably the earliest I've seen Maggie Smith, and I didn't know, like, she was born at age 65. Yes, she's one, of, she's one of those actors, like Elaine Stitch. It's just like, she was born to be an old person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But, like, all that's played very mildly. Like, it never acknowledges... I do believe that Whoopi Goldberg is the only uh, woman of color in this convent. Mm-hmm. And, but the, the only amount that they acknowledge that is when they, like, transform these old Motown songs into spiritual songs, of which they, you could argue that there is some, like, basis for, you know, like, uh, rock and roll and jazz, like, having, having their history in, in 
uh, old spiritual songs, but it it never really it it never really explains that. Mm-hmm. Like it never really acknowledges that. It, it never really acknowledges any of that history. It never acknowledges that like Maggie Smith needs to loosen up a little bit, or that what's her name Dolores, Ruby uh, <laughs> Goldberg's character Dolores, uh, needs to live uh, more uprightly. Instead, it just kind of plays um, on like good but very broad like laughs. Like I love that. Um, they asked Whoopi Goldberg to say grace, and she, like, obviously doesn't remember the rest of the prayer, so she says, um, <laughs> and so she goes into, like, the Lord's Prayer and then the Pledge of Allegiance. <laughs> like, that's a very good scene. But yeah, it's all kind of played, like, like very, very mildly. Mm-hmm. Like, it is like a movie to watch in the background because it's not, like, really. It's like, not histrionic. It's not, like. Yeah, it's yeah. not really confronting, like, the, like, the drama of of this scenario as much as there is because it's really a great comedic presence and that that's all that it really plays for is just the laughs it's less interesting it's even less interesting unfortunately in sister act two back in the habit because i I did a little digging great greg here come the hot takes greg thinks the sequel to sister act didn't live up to the first one (laughs) well no it's not that it didn't live up to it it's just that it has almost nothing to do with sister act because sister act was a huge hit Mm -hmm. the people obviously loved it they adored it and yeah, and so they they kind of quickly greenlight a seek a sequel. What's amazing that is that it only came out a year and a half later. Like, can you believe like how how yeah, impossible very that fast is turnaround time. <laughs> yeah, and and I'm wondering like how did they did how did they do it? Well, it turns out they they had this old screenplay, an old inspirational story about the um, Crenshaw like boys and girls choir, uh, a real life story about a, a boys and girls choir transcending their impoverished urban neighborhood and and really like amounting to something with their incredible musical talent so they had this like sort they had the screenplay just sitting there and they're like what the hell do we do with it like oh i know let's make it a sister act movie (laughs) and make buffo box office that way so by this point like dolores is already like there's nothing really forcing her to be uh now a teacher at this uh rundown catholic school in san francisco Mm. other than like this obligation to her now friends in the convent and so, like it, a lot of a lot of little scenes like don't make sense. Like there's one scene where um, the the school is now run by you know, uh, old crusty white men whose whose actors' names I can't even be bothered to remember. <laughs> <laughs> but at one point, um, like he calls over Mother Superior, played by Maggie Smith, and is like, "What do you think of this uh, Dolores character? I, that's not her real name. She's Mary Clarence is her is her alibi, but." Uh, uh, Maggie Smith like defends her and says like even though she's a bit unconventional like uh she's she's worth having as a teacher and I'm like wait a minute she hasn't done anything to be like unconventional <laughs> as a teacher yet I feel like this move this this scene should be either placed like earlier when they just bring her on or later when she does something like I don't know reforms the choir mm-hmm. because all she does is like uh she becomes like a, a straight talker to these kids mm. uh, these these roustabouts these rebels in the in the music class so. <laughs> Uh, she she kind of um, shapes them up by uh, first connecting them through hip hop, um, but then also like trying to build them up because some some of them are a bit meek and uh, you know don't want to oh they don't want to they need a confidence boost <laughs> exactly yes so she gives them a confidence boost and then the, later because this is again based on a real life choir who won a singing competition it 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 shows the other nuns in the convent like just cleaning up and like they're like wait a minute what are all these trophies like hey this this song this uh school won many uh music competitions many years ago like hey and they rush <laughs> over to a, a class in which literally Whoopi Goldberg's character is just standing in the back of the room there's no like kind of like motivation for what's happening here <laughs> 
and they say like hey we entered you in a music contest i'm like what like so it's like it's it's very thin like nothing's motivated by anything it's like they didn't put the because they wanted to green light it quick quickly to get like to play off the success of the first sister act it's like none of it's really thought out but it still floats on the charms of all the actors, particularly yeah. Whoopi Goldberg, Maggie Smith. Mm-hmm. Um, the actress is also in Hocus Pocus, whose name I can't remember now. Bette Midler. Um, Bette Midler. No, 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 it's not <laughs> Bette Midler. And it's not uh, uh, Sarah Michelle, not Sarah Michelle Geller. Oh, gosh. Uh, Sarah Mark Jessica Roberts. Parker. San- no. Okay. <laughs> yes, it is Sarah Jessica Parker. Yeah, you're right. All right. Okay, got yeah. it. I was about to say Matthew Broderick's wife. Ooh. <laughs> Greg, come on! I know, yes. This is supposed to be a pro-woman podcast. What happened? I know, you're right. I know, I apologize. But it, it, it floats on the comedic talents of Whoopi Goldberg and, all, and, the, and the game cast that surrounds her. I just wish, like, they kind of went with it a little bit more with the material and making it, like a, again, like a Goofus and Gallant story where, you know, Goofus kind of learns to live more upright and uh, Gallant learns to, like, you know, loosen up a little bit. But... It, it just feels a little bit too, I don't know, mild and, and just sets itself as background viewing when it really could have been like, you know, really much more compelling, I think. Mm. Um, yeah. And, but I do want to commend the two directors. Um, one of them, uh, sadly, it was his last, Sister Act was his last film. He, he, uh, he passed away from uh, AIDS after that. And then uh, Sister Act 2 was directed by Bill Duke, the venerable Bill Duke. Uh, um, character actor, uh, best remembered as Mac in Predator, um, and he was a he was a coach in my, one of my favorite films from last year, High Flying Bird. So, oh, okay, yep. I'm not super familiar with him, but uh, I'll take your word for it. Okay, yep, yep. So that that's uh, Sister Act and Sister Act Two back in the habit. <laughs> All right, done and done. All right, we're done. We don't need to spotlight anything else, right? We're done. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. No, 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 Greg. I have another piece of of just kind of. Fun, frivolous entertainment. I was going to, okay. you know, given the, the serious tone of the movie we watched this week, I thought maybe I should do something a little more serious. I was going to spotlight Embedded on uh, the NPR podcast, but mm-hmm. I want to do something a little more fun, a little more, uh, 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 a little more engaging to the fun side of things. Uh, like I said, uh, I found a little Hulu hack. They don't play commercials for children's entertainment. So uh, <laughs> once I finished all the available episodes on Steven Universe, I'm like, what's next? And I came across a little show that was highly recommended to me by you know other hipster outlets. And it's a little show called Gravity Falls. Are you familiar okay. with Gravity Falls, Greg? Uh, only through those out- media outlets that uh, claim to be for adults. <laughs> They're like... <laughs> We're going to put this in our TV recap schedule alongside Watchmen and <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable and When They See Us. Exactly. Um, Gravity Falls is a animated show that I think originally premiered on the Disney Channel or Disney XD or one of their offshoots. Who gives a shit? doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, it centers is around... Is it by the same creators as Steven Universe or is it... No. Uh, it's, okay. by, it's created by a guy named uh, Alex Hirsch, but um, he apparently, or at least is kind of a collaborator with one Justin Roiland, whose name you might remember because he's one of the co-creators of Rick and Morty. So I think that's kind of initially what got people uh, kind of interested in this, or at least why like more adults are kind of oriented to this, even though it is kind of like safer family viewing. It does get dark at times. Uh, I guess I should probably uh, give you the actual plot. Um, It centers around uh, Dipper 
and Mabel Pines. They're two twins who are shipped off for the summer to the uh, town of Gravity Falls to live with their great uncle Stan, or as they refer to him as Grunkle Stan. Grunkle Stan runs basically a, a tourist trap called the Mystery Shack where basically anything that he thinks he can get a quick book off of, he turns into a mystery and, and gives it like a fake backstory. Uh, come to find out that a lot of those backstories aren't actually too far off from the actual weird truth, and it's up to Dipper and Mabel to kind of figure out the truth behind Gravity Falls and all the weird kind of mysteries surrounding the town. Uh, the other kind of hipster bona fides surrounding this um show is that there's a lot of references apparently to uh, the X-Files and Twin Peaks because it takes place in the Pacific Northwest. Um, I did not understand any of those references because I'm not a fan <laughs> of either of those shows, but I'll okay. take their word for it. Yes. Um, but it's a very cute show. Um, I would say it's it's uh, it's very well constructed, I would say, in terms of like plot beats and humor and what's also great about it is it only lasted 40 episodes, so it wrapped up quite nicely. There is kind of an overarching plot about the mystery of Gravity Falls, and uh, the first episode centers around Dipper finding this, uh, this tome, this journal mm-hmm. from uh, an unknown writer who basically kind of chronicles all the strange happenings of Gravity Falls. And so each of the episodes, like the framing device, is that he either uses the book or it's, the mystery is adjacent to what's actually happening in the book. And then we find out who the actual author is, and it's just—it's a fun romp. It's a fun romp. <laughs> All right. Yeah. It's fun with uh, when you when you say it gets dark, like how how exactly does it get dark? Like, do we see about like uh, the mystery of I don't know, like uh, horrible serial killers or child slayings or? <laughs> no, no, no. It never gets that deep. Yeah. There is at one point, I think, in the finale, a, a character does says, "Now give me a moment. I have to turn these two children into corpses." Um, so do oh. things do get a little threatening at times. Okay. Um, there are a few um, episodes where it kind of, it's it's more like kind of in this vein of like an 80s horror movie but it's still kind of like kid oriented like i would say like gremlins there's one episode that centers around a holiday that only gravity falls would celebrate which is called summerine because they wanted to do a halloween episode but obviously this is taking place during the summer so they couldn't have like a halloween episode so they they concoct a reason why they're celebrating and that um and that episode centers around like a kind of zombie apocalypse that kind of breaks out and we get to see like zombified characters and like there's certain aspects like there especially the finale where it gets kind of like Cronenbergian like things kind of like go like there's this it's too hard to explain I'm sorry okay <laughs> like I can't no, really I, get I, into like you specific... kind of answered my question yeah in terms of like what what tone is it striking like mm-hmm. There's threatening, but it's it's not really like it's not really exploring any existential darkness. Instead, it's like it feels like characters live, or it feels like say the threats are are greater than say Scooby Doo or something. Where oh yeah, absolutely. it's all resolved by the end. So, no, like, no, no, that's no. that's the idea behind Scooby Doo. Here, it sounds like things build on themselves, and there's actual like kind of stakes involved. They do get resolved, but it's part of this overarching forty episode long plot arc that. Like kind of that—that's what keeps you engaged. Is that? Yeah, that's what I'm I, saying. Yeah, you're absolutely okay. right. It's definitely not like Scooby-Doo, where it's like, and there was a simple explanation for everything. No, there is yeah. actual weird sci-fi nonsense going on here, um, okay. and the kids are in mortal danger at times. Um, towards the end of the series, yes, though there is kind of like a kind of more introspective look towards things because they are kind of getting older, and also like Alex Hirsch, I was reading a little bit more about him, like his inspiration for the show was uh, 
as a kid, he was sent off to uh, during a summer with his twin to the Pacific Northwest, and he found it very boring. So he would like kind of uh, retreat into his imagination and try to pretend like, oh, all the weird stuff that's happening that no one else sees. And so mm-hmm. it's kind of like the same thing where it's like exploring this idea of like our putting childish things behind, or at least that's kind of a theme that it might be exploring towards the end of its run. But um, okay. it's really it's a really well crafted show. So okay, yeah, I. I might want to check it out. The one thing I can't get over is its name. Hmm. Gravity Falls is a very dumb pun <laughs> um, to base a show after. Mm-hmm. It doesn't roll off the tongue, and again, I don't, I don't like the pun. So, well, okay then. I mean, you're completely justified. You should just give it up on uh, exactly. That point. Yeah. Yes, on that merit alone. Exactly. <laughs> well done, me. All right, pat on the back. Done. Uh, this might sell you, though. Uh, I forgot to mention that one of the writers and performers on the show is one Matt Chapman. Do you remember a certain Matt Chapman? Oh, of course I remember Matt Chapman of Los Brothers Chaps. Uh, <laughs> right? Or Los Brothers Chapman, I guess. I, they, never, they didn't abbreviate the chat part. It's the Homestar Runner guys. Exactly, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, he's actually, I was looking him up on IMDb. He's had quite an illustrious career after uh, they stopped doing like weekly uh, Homestar Runner stuff. Yeah, so it, it well, it's him, just him, not his brother, right? Yeah, just him. Yeah, and I think one of the other uh, creators behind Homestar Runner went on to become an indie film director and do some kind of like really harrowing thrillers like Compliance. And, oh, really? <laughs> yeah, oh, I didn't know yes. that. <laughs> yeah, so they they've had a they've had some a, some eclect, a, an eclectic career following a post uh, Homestar Runner's heyday mm-hmm. in the early two thousands. So yeah. I don't know if I, I mean. Did we have to tell people that we were into Homestar Runner growing up? I think that's pretty I, evident, given <laughs> yeah, <laughs> given you know who we are as people. I think it's pretty obvious they could tell. Yeah, people may be shocked to learn one of our favorite shows growing up, The Simpsons. <laughs> Does anyone remember that one, guys? Have you checked out the Simpsons show? It's on Disney yeah. Plus now. I guess it's a Disney show. <laughs> yeah, it's a Disney. It's a Disney show. Little scene back in its day. Um, so yes. Ugh, Greg, the warm, warm blanket of nostalgia. Mm. Is there anywhere on the internet where we could go find nostalgic things that make us harken back to simpler times? Is there ever? Um, there, there's place that make you, that uh, allow you to love it and then also fear it. Okay. Because <laughs> I'm sure Facebook, uh, Facebook is the one that uh, allows you to indulge in it. It uh, basically. Because it's in, it's uh, inundated by old people now, mm-hmm. they just want to go back to like a simpler time. So visit us on Facebook, facebook.com/aspiringsnobs. Uh, just basically feeling the warm glow of nostalgia. You know, feel about just kind of a earnest, positive energy about uh, kind of the movies we pick and discuss. Uh, you could feel that. If you want to feel the opposite end of that spectrum, <laughs> you can go to Twitter, where you will be told that everything you like is stupid and dumb, and you are stupid and dumb for liking it. So. <laughs> Go to twitter.com slash aspiring snobs. I do think I did that. see a tweet today where someone just quoted, um, actually, and then uh, attributed to Twitter. So, yes, if you're yes. looking forward <laughs> to being corrected, yes, enjoy Twitter. But then there's also the safe space of Instagram. Instagram is a safe space for everybody. So you can also Absolutely. follow us there, and uh, you'll get little jokes and updates from me as I post whenever I feel like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's it. We're not on TikTok or I don't know. Is Vine? Vine isn't still around, unfortunately. Uh, no. <laughs> uh, to pour one out for Vine. Ugh. 
If Vine were still around, though, we would be the kings of Vine. Let me tell you. <laughs> sure. We'd be us staring blankly into computers, because that's what we do about 90% of our days. There but. you go. <laughs> but yes, if you want to actually reach out to us directly, you can always DM us, or you can reach out to us on our email, aspiringsnobs at gmail.com, with your questions, comments, and recommendations. Of course, we love our audience. We love your feedback. So go ahead and send us our way. And since we love you, can you reciprocate that a little bit by loving on us, giving us, going to your podcast service of choice, namely Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, going to the review section, clicking five stars and saying, hey, these guys are great. I really like listening to the episodes. I think you will like this podcast too. Yes. Because then more people will find us. Uh, we'll build this giant community. Uh, we'll add to the discourse. Mm-hmm. It's so important, the conversation, the discourse. Oh, just so important. Just so important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. People want to hear yeah. our hot takes on Joker again. Yeah. So. Exactly. Yes. And it'll keep the podcast ad-free. Uh, when you support it with your listeners. That's all. <laughs> if we ever get asked to do an ad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I pray that day never comes, and, and we avoid it like a plague. Yes. So. <laughs> I mean, can you, like, I just worry that I just will never be able to work up the enthusiasm for anything. Oh, these oh, mattresses. Not, yeah. These mattresses are just so perfect. <laughs> I know. I despise going to the post office with every fiber of my being. <laughs> It literally gets my blood boiling. These <laughs> undies are so comfortable. I cannot stand yeah. it. <laughs> I I thought I was hopeless. I could not find a suit that fit me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, Greg, with all that business done out of the way, there's only one thing left to do, and that is to tell the folks what we're watching next week. Yes, we're watching another, uh, I won't say art house, but definitely one that doesn't have as big a renown. Uh, this isn't going to be great for SEO for us, <laughs> but we are going to watch uh, an art film that's getting a lot of burn uh, now that people are doing their best of the decades list. It's a movie that came out at the Cannes Film Festival in 2010, uh, became critically acclaimed worldwide, and is available now in the Criterion Collection. Uh, we're watching about the, the two-hander starring uh, uh, one Juliette Binoche, certified copy. I remember when this was released, it got a lot of like, oh, you know, like the critics lauded it, but yeah, it didn't, yes. it didn't sweep the nation like, say, a Parasite did, so. And, and no, and but like Parasite, they're like, we can't give anything away. We can't really tell you what it's about. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I, I'm looking forward to actually finally sitting down and watching it so that I can, I can see what the heck all the buzz is about. <laughs> the fact that critics worldwide, not that, I don't know, any regular listener cares, but... <laughs> See what the heck they're they're talking about in what a movie that appears to be about a, a conversation between an older gentleman who's like an author and a, a passionate fan of his, and they just kind of wander through this French village and <laughs> talk about life and things. I guess I would say it's like the before sunset for old people, but the before, before sunsets are already yeah. for old people. So. <laughs> okay, boomer. It's gonna be okay, boomer. The episode. There yeah. <laughs> No, John, Before Sunrise is all about, like, Gen X, man. Oh, like, man, uh, everything's stupid. <laughs> yeah, I can't fall in love. It's it's for old people today. Okay, now Gen go. X. Yes. There you go. <laughs> all right. Well, that wraps it up. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Yes, and until next week, keep aspiring. In the heights,